Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Joining me once again, my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hi, Christopher. Wow, we've got another disparate collection of interviews and clips to share with you. And you can call them disparate, you can call them desperate, <laughs> but they are uh, quite the collection from deep inside the vault and one of them from the very recent past. Ah. First up, a terrific interview with Peter Frampton from 1989. Looks back at the insanity of the 70s, fame, what, um, you know, the price that he had to pay. It's a really great piece. He can tell and, the story, can't he? Oh, he really can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what he did... What he did to hide from everything was kind of funny. He went on tour with, with someone else very <laughs> Hiding famous. Hiding in plain sight, I believe yes. that's called. Yeah. Well, it, it is, but he hid in plain sight behind a, an artist even bigger than he was, uh, who was also a good friend, which is a revelation in itself. And then uh, in our next segment, we have you, Christopher, in conversation briefly with the late and very great Leonard Cohen. Mm, that was a thrilling event for me. Lots I'll tell to you t- more. Yeah, lots to talk about there. Now, this week on When Rock Stars Attack, it's a couple of electropop guys taking a swipe at not another rock star, but an entire industry. Oh, I mean, why wow, not, right? wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and in our last segment, we go way back a whole seven years for a chat with Taylor Swift. Yeah. Now, there's some fluff in the interview, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff. We trimmed away the fluff for you and kept the good parts, okay? Yeah. And she even talks about Katy Perry because back then, they were BFFs. Wow. The fact that that's not considered fluff is kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard the interview, too, and it, it is, is revealing really about good. you it and is. me. I know. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> All right. Let's start with Peter Frampton. Okay. In 1976, you could not find a bigger star than Peter Frampton. After four solo records, he hit the jackpot with a live album of songs that most people had never heard before. It sold... Eight million copies in the U.S. alone, a staggering total. Thank you! Sorry, that was my Frampton. (laughs) But but that sudden fame, it's the hair that's missing, I'm just going to tell you. It was that sudden fame that had its cost, and Frampton did his best to cope. So by the mid-80s, his idea of getting away from it all was to be a guitar player in David Bowie's touring band, (laughs) which he loved doing. Wow, who knew? Yeah, and in 89, he told interviewer Brad Giffen about his connection to Bowie. We um, actually went to school together for one year. My father was David's art teacher. He's the head of the art department. And um, so, yes, I've known David since I was 12. So, um, and he's always been a little strange. No. Um, (laughs) So, um, it was, I I don't know, it it wasn't inevitable, but it was, um, in fact, it was quite a surprise to get the call from David to, but you never know what he's going to do, do you? Which is the good thing about David. So it was uh, an honor, you know, and uh, David called me up after uh, he'd heard the Premonition record and uh, loved my guitar playing on that, said so, and asked me to do some of that on his. Would I play on his record? I said, absolutely. So I went, um, went and did that um, towards the end of 86. And then he's, after a couple of days, he said, oh, look, Look, we've got to take this further. I'm going to do the tour. Would you Would you be the, you know, the special attraction <laughs> as the guitarist? So it was just uh, it was not, not a dream come true, but, I mean, close to it. I mean, to do something that, that terrific, um, but it's nothing to do... Well, it is my career, but 
not as Peter Frampton, the solo artist. Mm. It was nice. It's nice to diversify and get away from things. Was there a period of adjustment that, that perhaps you feel you went through after the success of 76, 77, Frampton Comes Alive, and, 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 and also the triple platinum selling uh, I'm In You? I guess what I'm really asking is, was it difficult going from a respected teen idol to simply a respected musician? Well, you see, I started off from Humble Pie's exposure um, being a respected musician. And, uh, in fact, Humble Pie was formed to get away from being a teeny bopper idol uh, for me and for Steve Marriott. And we did it rather successfully. And, um, unfortunately, up until the live album was, was released, uh, well, fortunately, up until the live album was released, I was known as a musician, guitarist, singer, songwriter. Immediately, and, and there was no hype. The album just did it on its own merit because of the following that I'd built up um, over the years of touring. And uh, I had a definite cult audience out there, you know, which had taken a long time to build up and a lot of credibility and um, along the way. Uh, for me, it was very disappointing that after the live album, we didn't control the press at all. We just let it run, the media run with this huge snowballing sort of horrible thing um, that happened. Uh, and sort of within one foul swoop turned me back into a, a teen, teen idol sort of thing, um, which is I'd let it happen again, which was like amazing. And I, of course, I blame the press a little bit, the media, but I have to blame myself as well. I blame myself. <laughs> but um, I think I've got over blaming myself now because I think when you're 26 and you look to people around you that are advising you supposedly the right way, um, there were no rules. We were, we'd, broken, we'd broken the rules. We'd broken the sales, uh, all-time record sales with Frampton Comes Alive. And... Um, uh, all these people suddenly had these wonderful theories as to what would be the, ter the, the most terrific thing for me to do. And I didn't feel good about half the things they were suggesting. Uh, my gut reaction was, no, I don't want to do that. In fact, I want to go away now. I've toured enough. You know, I don't want to make another record right now. And, and I think instead of I'm in you, I should have gone away for two or three years. Michael Jackson, after Thriller, went away for nearly four years. You know, I think he learnt something from the success than I had. So, uh, you know, he definitely did, I, I know for a fact. So it's just when you've reached that many million people, so many millions of people have bought the record, you don't have to worry about zooming into the studio and getting a record out. They're not going to forget in a couple of years, you know. So just made a few mistakes along the way there. But now I just feel I eventually did take my break. 82 to 86, which was just absolutely necessary. I was close to burnt out, you know. What um, was your personal life like at that time, then? Well, it had been through some more, you know... Uh, it had been through the peaks and valleys of, of, uh, just like the career, you know. There's no way it's not going to affect your personal life uh, when something like that happens to you. It's, it's very difficult to not let it affect it. And I felt pretty much... As if it's going to happen to anybody, if it happens to me, like it, success, I'll pretty, I've been through this in, in small ways before with the herd in England and humble pie. I'll be able to handle it, but I don't think anybody 
Um, it doesn't matter how old you are, I don't think you can actually handle something that was almost, in somebody else's words the other day, almost Beatlesque, the amount of attention and media and hype and, you know, that was uh, lumped on me at that time. So, of course, of course it affected my personal life. Peter, there are people, since this is radio, people are sitting at home and they're saying, geez, you know, I wonder what he looks like. I mean, everybody's got Frampton Comes Alive in their record collection now. And they're saying, okay, well, geez, I wonder what he looks like 13 years later. Uh, how would you describe yourself right now? Well, it's been a long time. Uh, and looking back, um, I'm totally bald now. I've got false teeth. And um, now I, I sort of, uh, what would you say? I'm just similar. Well, I'd kind of say like, you know, the Dorian Gray, the Dick Clark of rock and roll. Oh, my right? God, no. Not that. Ah! Um, no, I've, I've looked after. I've been through my <clears throat> fair share of crazies. And uh, I shouldn't really look this good. Uh, I've dabbled in this, and I've dabbled in that, and uh, so, like everybody else during that, that period, I think, or most people in, in this profession, um, but I came out of it pretty unscathed, I think, and with uh, my feet firmly back on the ground. Wow, does he ever sound happy in that interview? That's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. I actually saw them um, when they were doing the Bowie tour. I think it was for the Never Let Me Down album. And they had a press-only thing at the um, Diamond Club in Toronto, which I got to introduce, which was fantastic. Oh, great. They did four or five songs. And you forget what a great musician Peter Frampton is. Mm -hmm. That gets lost in, you know, the craziness of being a pop star. And I'm sure that's, for him, a loss. And uh, well, he, he just revealed once again what a great player he is. Right, and he says that in the interview, right? He, he, did, he never wanted to be a teen idol. He got out of Humble Pie because it was heading in that direction. So he does his own thing, has a few albums, builds his fan base up to the point where he can play fairly large arenas like the one he, that's, that's recorded where uh, Frampton Comes Alive is mm-hmm. recorded. And then all of a sudden he becomes a teen idol again. And he just wants to play guitar and, you know, I'm sure he's not complaining about the money that he made or even the attention that he received for a certain while. Right, right. But then what comes next? What's expected of him next? That's kind of the tragedy. That's a musical tragedy because his guitar work and the band's work on that Frampton Comes Alive album is sensational. Like, it is a quality album. Mm-hmm. It's not just a fluff piece. Yeah. And all of a sudden, thereafter, he's treated as a fluff piece, which is just sad. So yeah. the fact that he sounds so healthy those many years later in 1989... And that he sounds so happy is terrific. And, you know, he's gone on... He, the funny thing is, as much as he despised that kind of fame, he, he's, he remastered Frampton Comes Alive many years later. <laughs> right. He added a whole bunch of different songs. He, put, he rejigged the songs so that they were in the right order according to how the concerts actually sounded. Oh. Like, he did a lot of stuff to honor Frampton Comes Alive because I think in the distance of, like, at least 20 years, right. um, I think it was actually the 25th anniversary that he, did, that he did it, it was fine with him after all that time, right? And he cashed the checks. Oh, and he also comments, I don't think we heard it in that interview, but he also comments on the fact that the group Will to Power combined his song, Baby, I Love Your Way, oh, right. with Free Bird by Leonard Skinner. And he said, <laughs> they did it in a way that those songs were never meant to be done, right? Wow. But he, he admits that that single sold way more than any of his songs ever did. Amazing. So, so he's still kind of thankful for that. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. 
With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforce.com. Time to talk to Leonard Cohen. I'd love to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a lazy bastard living in a suit. <laughs> That's one Ooh. of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs. That's a great quote. No, not a lot of people know that, but um, that song. But it's from uh, 2012, and it's called "Going Home" from the album "Old Ideas," right. which was produced by Patrick Leonard, who is best known for his work with Madonna. So the fact that Patrick Leonard put this really odd gauzy sheen on top of <laughs> on top of um, Leonard Cohen's music was sensational, and the background vocalist work that he did on those last few albums is uh, is just terrific. Uh, okay, so Christopher, yes, Tom, you got to talk to Leonard Cohen. You got to meet him. Yeah. Um, like I have so much to say. Leonard Cohen strikes me as the kind of guy who always looked like he knew. A secret about life that you didn't know, and perhaps he did. You know, he was a practicing Buddhist, and mm-hmm. he was a lot of things. But he was like a soothsayer. Like there was something about him that was so um, revered, but also he kind of brought it on himself a little bit. Like he he acted like this sage guy who was also a rogue, right? Like, there was. It's, <laughs> That's it's a everything. great combination to pull off, right. too, isn't it? And and he does this so. For me, uh, like I don't, wouldn't even have known what to have asked him uh, in a conversation. Now we've got a couple short clips, uh, like four short clips here with you. Yeah, his his answers were um, not abrupt, but definitely to the point. Right. Okay. And we talked about um, uh, the fact that he was on tour all over Europe, and uh, we talked about a new album called Various Positions, which, by the way, contains two of his most beloved songs. Dance me to the end of love, mm-hmm. personal favorite, right? And hallelujah. I don't know. I don't think I've heard that second one. <laughs> <laughs> you have some facts on hallelujah that yes, you're going to hit us for with, sure, right? for sure, in a few All minutes. Right. Yeah, we started by talking about the five-year gap between album releases. Well, it's uh, it's no guarantee of uh, their excellence, but it takes me a long time to to write a song. And of course, I wrote I wrote a book and a film scenario. And, did that video I am a hotel right I've been a good boy I've been busy <laughs> and you just finished speaking of accolades a very successful European tour 45 dates is that right yes 45 concerts uh, right across the continent and you talked about one show in Paris where you did 17 encores well it felt like that it was about another <laughs> almost another hour of uh, encores yeah now it's funny the reviews were great uh, except the one the quote I was handed was the Montreal critic who says he had all the charisma of a small-town undertaker. Some of those guys are pretty flashy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's very hard to get a good review in Montreal. Yes. The standards are very, very high. Well, you're going to go back and try it one more time. You've got uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver dates coming up. Yes. Montreal is always very hard because the entire audience is filled with friends and relatives. It's very hard to perform that way. Do they know you too well? Yes, I think that's it. 
Now, this was in 1985, and an oh. entire generation of artists was, I think, kind of discovering or rediscovering Cohen's work. And they were indicating the sort of powerful influence that he wielded over them. Ian McCulloch came to uh, every concert I gave in, uh, in England and Ireland. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very agreeable to, to see young musicians citing me as a, as a mentor. Because for a while there, uh, I had the feeling I was out in left field, and uh, you know, th there were no, uh, there was no continuity in what I was doing. Do you listen to much of the contemporary pop music, and if so, does it influence you? Uh, well, I, I listen to music. You know, I turn on the radio from time to time, uh, and uh, you know, like it says in the in the Talmud, there's good wine in every generation. There's always somebody standing up and opening at his heart. Sure. Are the young artists who you're particularly impressed by? There's there's a lot of people that are good. Uh, Ian McCulloch, I'm fond of. Uh, Nick Cave, I like uh, very much. Uh, Smiths are good. Mm -hmm. Orchestral maneuvers in the dark, I like. And then the, just the previous generations, because generations are about five years now. Uh, Elvis Costello, and then going back through his lineage to Joe Cocker and Ray Charles. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of fine men out there. Oh, okay. So Ian McCullough is uh, from Echo and the Bunnymen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really like their music. I, I, I always thought it had a depth that a lot of the quote-unquote new wave music didn't always, uh, didn't always contain. But I, I really liked his work. You know, what's interesting to me is that he was so current in what he was listening to mm -hmm. as he lists off the bands there that, yeah. um, that he's been paying attention to. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Um, now, of course, I wanted to ask about songwriting, you know. Yeah. But he kind of answered my question metaphorically. Yeah, I've always wanted to write something that'll last. My, my songs have la lasted now just about as long as a Volvo car. <laughs> but 23 years, I think they're supposed to last. Do the same things that make you want to write music, make you want to write poetry? I, I never made much of a distinction uh, between the two of them. You know? I, I never operated from a very deluxe position, more like a, a rat trying to get his teeth into something, find something that yields. That's motivation for writing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm taken aback by that. <laughs> and the amount of work that he put into the song Hallelujah alone was staggering. I think at one point he, he wrote at least 80 verses over four years. And at one point in that process, he found himself on the floor of a New York hotel, the Royalton, by the way, great place to stay. Been there. Um, in his underwear. <laughs> sorry, I'm talking about Leonard now, not you. Um, banging his head on the floor in frustration because he couldn't finish. Hallelujah. Wow. Now, now, how many verses do you have to write to finish Hallelujah? And one of the things I think that he said is he had to finish the verse he was working on, even if he didn't like it, to move on to the next one. So that in itself is an unusual, uh, unusual way of writing. I've never heard of someone mm -hmm. overwriting to that extent. So he records the song, and what album is that from again? Various Positions. Right. He re I wasn't testing you, um, yeah, you were. but I couldn't remember. Uh, so he records the song. His record company president, Walter Yetnikoff, says, What the hell is this? <laughs> this isn't pop music. This is a disaster. We cannot sell this. Okay, so imagine having put that much effort into that song and that album. Um, and then, of course, 
it became it, it took on a life of its own. How about the Katie Lang version? Well, the Katie Lang version, that was my gateway into the song. I oh, really? actually didn't know the song before then. Ah. And then she um there was a songwriter when when that song was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame here in Toronto. Right. Leonard was at that event cuz I think I yeah, I think he was being inducted. And Katie sings the song and he basically looks at whoever he's with and he said, "Okay, that's the version." That's the definitive version after she does it. Oh. Like, we can kind of put this song to bed now. It's finally been done. I was there so, that night. There that, were some amazing versions of his songs, right? Uh, yes. Well, I, I wasn't there. Oh. What happens is, a few months later, she does it on the Junos. Right. And I have that recording. Mm-hmm. And I played that recording to anybody who would listen and said, you've got to hear this song. It just got better and better. And, of course, it became overdone because it ended up on American Idol a lot of people mm-hmm. sang it and it became this whole thing and even Leonard Cohen himself said I love the song but it's been done too much and then after a while he kind of came around and became a little bit less curmudgeonly about it because he realized <laughs> what was happening to him and his uh, and his pocketbook and also right. the honor you know that bestowed upon him that it was covered so reverently by so many people well there's one other obscure footnote to that songwriter mm-hmm. hall of fame event you're talking about okay um Willie Nelson, in a cloud of smoke, <laughs> appeared on stage to perform Bird on a Wire. Oh, that's amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah, and I love Willie's voice, and he would yeah. have done that justice. Uh, by the way, Hallelujah was recently chosen as the greatest Canadian song of all time by iHeartRadio Canada listeners for our um, Canada 150 celebration. Right now, we time travel to a church in Toronto in 1987. Four musicians gathered around one single microphone, trying to get the sound right, the mix right, the vocals right. And to get into the studio in the first place, they had to tell the church that they were actually the Timmons family singers. We're talking about the Cowboy Junkies and the album The Trinity Sessions, which, um, to everyone's surprise, cost $200 and then went on to sell 2 million copies. (laughs) Even the band was surprised. We were lucky enough to talk to Margot Timmons while all the love was still happening, and we asked if she was concerned about the press turning on the band. We're not really worried about it, um, but because we're really quite aware of it, um, but we definitely know what we're hoping for with the next album is that um, it's more normal, that I, I'm hoping that they don't all, uh, all of a sudden turn on us, mm-hmm. and I don't think that they will because they seem to be quite genuine, and, and a lot of them seem to be fans. But I don't think it'll be as large. 1988, it was, you know, Cowboy Junkies' year, mm-hmm. 1989. Um, we were new, and there was a lot to talk about, and there was a family angle and all that. Mm-hmm. But now that's gone, so we're old news now. Now that people are finding <laughs> yeah. out about you. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm hoping with the new album, we'll just have the normal sort of coverage get reviewed, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll get back into the papers again, but not at the same mm-hmm. same scale or... or with so much intensity, I mean, it, it was a little bit ridiculous, you know. Everybody, <laughs> everybody wanted it. Seventeen, you know, the girls' fashion magazine. Seventeen, 17 yeah, wanted to do right. something, and I Tiger Beat. Yeah, really. <laughs> so it, it did get to the point where it was a little bit ridiculous. So, after that album became really big, they kind of tried to replicate it, or not replicate it, but do something similar for the next album, right? They did. They made an attempt to go into. Um, uh, a temple. Okay. And then I think they got partway through that process. They'd already recorded part of that album. And then they went, wait. And they went on the road. And I think what happened is that the music started to change, as it does when you're on stage and you're performing and you're getting feedback from a crowd. And you na- go through those natural changes that success brings as well. 
And then they had a second thought about maybe replicating, and so they did something fresh, and they went into an actual recording studio. And the Trinity is is, um, is a really special album. I mean, the way that it was done, what happened on that day, and we didn't want to sort of try and redo it because it can't be redone. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so we decided, you know, it's time. We're, we're mature enough as a band. Um, we've been together four years now to try and figure out what to do in a studio. To go into a real recording Ooh, studio? Yeah, oh, very no. scary. <laughs> <laughs> so we did, and we recorded uh, live in the studio. The band played together, but I was in a vocal booth, which allows me a lot more freedom, because if I... Um, I haven't redubbed anything, but... Uh, just in knowing that I could, I was allowed mm-hmm. to experiment. So despite the name of the band, Tom, the members of the Junkies did not grow up listening to country music, but it did find its way into their lives on a bare-bones American tour. When Cowboy Junkies started, we were much more blues-influenced than we were, well, we didn't, hadn't even listened to country. And we took our first album, White Off Earth Now, on a tour down in the United States. We were down there for about four months, just the four of us in a van, sort of, you know, sleeping on people's floors, playing where they'd let us play. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time in the South, and while we were there, the, the new traditionalists like Steve um, Earle and Dwight Yoakam, Randy Travis, were beginning to do their thing, their first albums. Mm-hmm. And so we list, we liked what they were doing, and so in listening to them, we started to listen to what they were influenced by. Right. And Go back so, to the source. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we just got really turned on i mean it really hit us hard so for about four months there was the four of us listening to as much country as we could get our hands on Mm -hmm. and obviously it began to seep into the way that we would play or um, the way i would sing the the female country singers really influenced me and um so it it began to seep into our music which is obviously going to happen if you're listening to it a lot and uh that's where it came from. Toronto's place on the musical map is firmly established now. We just take that for granted. But there was a time when artists from the city had to fight for respect for their hometown. As Margot toured with the band, she found a lot of people who didn't know much about Toronto, particularly in the South, or Canada for that matter. But she also found people who were really curious to know what was going on in that city. A lot of people, though, I've found, because there's so much good music coming out of Toronto, people are really curious about what's going on up here mm-hmm. and what the music scene's like. And you're obviously and, spreading the word a lot about a lot oh, of your friends and that. Definitely, uh, yeah. as much as possible. Because, I mean, as far as we're concerned, um, and in traveling around, even when we were independent, we couldn't find a music scene that was as good as this one. You know, we sort of left Toronto thinking, oh, Toronto, you know, mm-hmm. nothing's kind happening here. Yeah. yeah, And go to New York where you think it's happening or Philadelphia or Chicago. And they've got one alternative club mm-hmm. um, where Toronto's got so many and the, the club owners will allow people to play. and So many places to get a, a foot yeah. in the door. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. So uh, this is the place. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, you hear a, a little bit about that in hindsight, about the Queen Street music scene, the Toronto music scene. You know, Cowboy Junkies were part of that. Blue Rodeo were part of that. Both bands were very hard to market, even based on their name alone. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, it's so interesting because it was a very vibrant and fertile area uh, very open to a lot of things. There, I recently listened to an interview, a very old interview, with um, Parachute Club. Right. And Lorraine Segato is talking at great length about how welcoming 
you know, this town was to her and her bandmates and all mm-hmm. the various permutations of the various bands they'd been into and the uh, the different cultures and the different styles that they embraced. And it was still embraced very much in the Toronto music scene. And that speaks very, uh, very much to Cowboy Junkies, Blue Rodeo, Parachute Club, and so many other bands. And it was a time, too, there really was a wave, which, uh, as you described, where they were pushing away the bands that had been successful just a couple of years earlier. Yeah. So the the real pop bands like Glass Tiger and Platinum Blonde and Honeymoon Suite, it was, okay, time for something brand new. Mm-hmm. And these were bands, I mean, Margot's a beautiful woman and a very telegenic you know, video personality, but they really wanted very little to do with that medium as a way of reaching people, interestingly enough. In fact, I interviewed her about making videos, and, and she said, uh, well, she didn't have a to-do list. She had what I call a not-to-do list. A to-don't list. A to-don't list. <laughs> <laughs> she, said, she said, I'm not walking in the video, I'm not riding a horse, I'm not kissing anybody, and I am not wearing a bustier. <laughs> and I sympathize, because I wouldn't either. And seriously, Margot didn't have to do any of that. Mm-hmm. And because just watching her sing was a sensual enough experience. Sorry, Margot, I, ho- you know, I, don't, I don't mean to, you know, that's not demeaning in the least. It's just that her, just her representation of her lyrics with her voice and just the way she sang it, that was compelling enough. Yeah, she's a hypnotic performer. She is, she is. There's another great bit in your book, which is called Is This Live, by the way, available at bookstores everywhere, uh, by Christopher Ward. There's a thing about them being on SNL and they they did SNL around the time when they were hot as but they were just a last minute fill in, is that how that worked? Yeah, I can't remember who had to cancel well, it says in the book that it was Flock of oh, Seagulls, Flock of Seagulls. <laughs> which is bizarre, because it would have been 1988 or so when that happened, and Flock of Seagulls had been, like, they were a distant memory by then. Mm. So the fact that they had, to, the fact that SNL booked them in the first place, maybe someone hadn't read the news. Like, they were, no, they <laughs> were get the nowhere memo. near the pop culture, yeah. you know, zeitgeist at, the, at that moment. Yeah. So, well, and, and, and all things happened for the right reason, didn't they? Because, of course, Cowboy Junkies then blew up in the U.S. Right. Immediately following the SNL performance, they sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of records. Yeah, that's amazing. It is mm-hmm. amazing how uh, people's lives change. I know there's a fairly uh, current artist, boy, I wish I could remember who it is, who said that one day they were not famous, not popular at all. The next day they'd appeared on uh, SNL, and then by the Sunday morning, people were recognizing him on the street. Wow. Yeah, it, it does change lives that instantly. Time now for yes. When Rock Stars Attack. <laughs> Actually, this could be called When Rock Stars Whine, okay? Because, you know, they're, they're complaining a bit, and it's, it's not harsh. It's not like some of the stuff that we've heard in, in, our, in our first few uh, episodes. But this time around, it's the Pet Shop Boys. And, you know, say what you want about the Pet Shop Boys. Boy, were they very successful. By the way... Over 50 million records. The most successful British duo in history. Ever, I know. I I had no idea until Mm. I found that fact the other day. So this is Chris Lowe and Neil Tennant from 1988, thereabouts. And they had just attended an award ceremony in England. And this is them taking a, a a pretty cool shot at the music industry in general. The British love award ceremonies, I think. In fact, they didn't, they didn't used to even be one for this, did they? It used to be just um, a private affair, you know, but then it became this public spectacle, you know, which was 
meant to promote British industry around the world. It's not really about it's not really about industry, you know. Even though it, you know, it's one of our biggest industries. I think the music industry is、mm-hmm. one of the things that Britain's actually quite good at. But you know, it's not really about that, and it seems at odds with what we do for it to be then portrayed as being. It's like it's like a, a business meeting at the end of the year where you present to your stock, you know, your shareholders how well you've done, you know, and then and here are examples of our product. You know, the Pet Shop Boys are some products of British industry,、mm. which you know, and it's not really how I see it. And I didn't want to be any part of that, so I didn't go to this because I didn't.、Uh-huh. Think, I didn't want to be any part of some industry. I mean, if anything, I would be—I'd be against that type of thing. Yes, I was blackmailed by your mind going. <laughs>、uh, um, did you get to meet anybody that you you wanted to meet when you were there?、Um, anybody?、Um, I know you've already met quite a few because you well, used to、Boy、be a journalist. Well, Boy George presented us with presented the award,、um, and it was funny because when I was a journalist years and years and years and years ago. Um, I slagged off Culture Club on their f- London concerts before they became famous. I didn't; they were very good、uh, at the time. And Boy George met me the day the magazine came out, and he was f- absolutely furious about this review. And、um, it's been a kind of, <laughs> Boy George. I don't think ever forgets anything. And、uh, anyway, so he presents the award <laughs> on the television, and he said,、uh, he said, he said, well. The- One of the people who's won this award tonight, he says, because I, I know who it is, because I don't even know the envelope yet. <laughs> and,、uh, and he said,、uh, criticised me years ago when、um, when、uh, we had one of our first gigs. He said I sound like David Sylvian, and I punched him in the face. And、uh, but anyway, I'm very pleased to get this award. Did、course. he punch you in the face? Anyway, so I marched up to the podium <laughs> on the television. Said, I said he didn't actually punch me in the face because <laughs> he didn't. And he、mm. laughed. We laughed. Actually, it was quite funny.、Mm. I also met Robert Plant. That was quite interesting. Oh yeah, Led Zeppelin.、Mm-hmm. I met Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. Paul He's a nice Simon. guy.、Mm. Uh, I didn't really talk to him, but he seemed like a nice guy. Mark Knopfler. In fact, he comes from the same part of Newcastle as me.、Mm-hmm. Um, he comes from from Gosford. Did you get to meet Kate Bush? I was sitting on the same table as her, but I couldn't really get to say that I met her.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> She was sitting there, there, and I said hello to her. She seemed very nice, actually, but、um, I don't know if she's shy or I'm shy. But we were both shy. We didn't really speak. All right, so there they are. Uh, the, two of the guys from the well, the only two guys from the Pet Shop Boys, Chris Lowe and Neil Tennant, and taking a shot at the music industry, which is great. But then they go on to list all the people that were sitting at the table with them and all the people that they met. I know. So they like, kind well, of we met Robert Plant. Yes,、yeah, <laughs> they kind of fanboy out, which is、uh, which is really funny yeah, in light of the fact that uh, that uh, Neil himself didn't want to be there, and that he almost got his lights punched out by、uh, Boy George.、Uh, right. Yeah. Well, we're all fans, though, right? Yeah, at the end of the day, I well, mean, the music business is a pretty big target, so you might as well take your best shot.、Yeah. I agree. I mean, you don't want to go through the world,、uh, you know, in a cynical fashion,、um, you know, at the best of times. But boy, oh boy, when you're in a situation like that and you're surrounded by some of the biggest artists in the world, but not only that, probably artists who influenced you,、mm-hmm. who you care about, I would tend to think that the cynicism kind of flies away a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Time now for cool song facts, which is Tom's Twitter account. So, Tom, this is where you get to geek out with impunity. So, a couple of cool song facts that I have today is number one: the only guy in ZZ Top without a beard is the guy named Frank Beard. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's obscure. Okay, I, I grant you. It is. In、um, a delightful way. Thank you.、Mm. Uh, my my aim is to delight.、Um, <laughs> And the and the other cool song fact for today is Mott the Hoople's biggest hit was All the Young Dudes. Of course, we know that song, right? right. Great song, written by David Bowie. You can hear the Bowie-esqueness of the whole thing. Absolutely, right. However, Mott the Hoople turned down Suffragette City. 
Like, mm. that is shocking to me. Like, why would you have turned that down? But anyway, at least they had the good sense to keep all the young dudes. But had they kept Suffragette City, they might be known more than just a one-hit wonder. No disrespect to Mata Hoople. I'm just talking about from a chart, top 40 point of view, they are a one-hit wonder. Yeah, that's their signature song, yes, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. But not a bad one to have. That's true. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. This is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives. All right, Christopher, this time it isn't actually a deep dive. It's more of a shallow dive. That, of course, is Taylor Swift and Wildest Dreams from a couple years ago. And now we take you back to an interview from about eight years ago with Taylor. What do you think of her, Christopher? I have huge respect for her. I I think she's enormously talented. And the first clue that I got is my daughter was a teenager when Taylor Swift first broke. And it was just how specifically she spoke to my daughter that could have clued me into the fact that Mm -hmm. she was really on to something. She learned the lessons of country music, sort of putting detail in your songs, visual details, that kind of thing. But then she, of course expanded into the pop world in a spectacular way. Mm-hmm. I think she's fantastic. And one of the songs um, that caught my ear, the one, the one that made me think, wow, she is really speaking to a specific audience, but it is really, it's, it was profound. Like, it really hit the spot. And it's a song called 15. I think the oh, chorus yeah. is, when you're 15, someone tells you they love you, you're going to believe them. And as a 15-year-old, can you imagine hearing that? You're kind of going, yes, that's exactly what I would feel. And I, I thought that line was so brilliantly written and brilliantly sung that I just went, wow, she kind of she kind of really hit the nail on the head there. Okay. I mean, that actually, it amplifies exactly what I said about yeah. my daughter connecting so yeah. deeply with what she had to say. Right. And, you know, I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near a 15-year-old, and I wasn't when I heard that song, but it really struck me as being true. And, and and when she hits her truth, I think she's a sensational songwriter. Yeah, agreed. All right, so here's Taylor from seven years ago talking with Richie Favalero about her new album from 2010, Speak Now. This album's about the last two years of my life, and uh, the last two years of my life have been very intense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have, like, intense joy, intense pain, intense curveballs, uh, and... When you have all these intense things happening, usually you don't say exactly the right thing at the right time. Mm -hmm. But I always end up walking away thinking to myself, now I know what I should have said. (laughs) And then I write a song about it, and there's your concept album. It's time to speak now. (laughs) That's the concept, of course. You know, I read a comment uh, that you said about how you, you sit in a room and you don't let the millions of people who might hear the song affect what it ends up being. And the only person that you're thinking about conveying a message to is the person the song is about. So are all the songs on this CD about or for real people? Absolutely. Um, for me, it's about, it's about sitting in a room and saying what you need to say to someone who inspired you, taught you something, someone you were in a relationship with. And, um, you know, when I'm writing songs, I write songs with very specific detail, like dates and times, locations, facial expressions, names, and that's all to paint a, a vivid picture and to tell a very clear, accurate story with specifics because your relationships, your memories, they're all made up of specifics. And so that's what my songs are made up of. And so what's it like for you to approach something that way and have millions of people that you, you've never met before in your life apply their own stories to 
your uh, your personal stories to their own lives. I think it's wonderful when that happens. And I think, you know, when I first started writing songs and putting them on albums, when I was getting ready to put out my first album, I had such a huge fear that no one would be able to relate to my music because it's really personal. It's it's about people in my life who have names and, and all these details about them in the songs. And by by pleasant surprise, I, I found that... Um, the fans could relate to the songs even more because they were personal. And that's been a wonderful discovery. Hey, I heard that while you were on stage the other night, you had uh, Katy Perry come and join you. That was, uh, that was a few months ago back at the Staples Center. It was yeah. wonderful. Um, she's a great friend, and she's so, so down to, like, get up on stage and have a good time. And, and she's so hilarious that um, I was coming to Staples Center, and she was like, I want to come to the show, and so I asked if she would get up and sing Hot and Cold with me, because that's one of my favorite songs by her. I'm a huge fan, and she did it. I was so excited. Does that blow your mind still a little bit, to have people like Katy Perry call you and say, I want to be on stage with you, Taylor? It's awesome. I mean, I really do, I do just take double takes of my life a lot, because it's just like, really? Like, I get to do this? I mean, I just remember um, I remember watching TV and seeing Shania Twain and Faith Hill performing for huge crowds and thinking, I wonder what it would be like to get to do that. And um, it's just been such a... I've had the time of my life in the last couple of years. Boy, uh, how much her life changes in the couple of years following that. If she yes. thought she had the time of her life then, yes. I mean, what lies ahead for her? And that was really the last record that could be called a country album, too. Right. So I got to think that in the back of her mind, she was thinking, okay... I'm out of here. There's so much to change. There's still the Kanye incident to come. There's, you know, all kinds of uh, all kinds of things are about to happen. There's her very public fallout with Katy Perry. And, of course, she just spoke about Katy Perry and what great friends they are and how mm-hmm. much respect she has. And so there's a lot about to happen to her. That's why I think some of these interviews are so fascinating because you can, if you can put them in historical context, you can really feel what's about to happen. And it, it gives the interviews new depth. I love her, what she's saying about songwriting. And to think that she's 20 at the time and has that kind of insight into the creative process. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for Famous Lost Words for another week. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. And thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh. Talk to you next time.